0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. This podcast is brought to you by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The DVBIA supports, promotes, and represents the shared interests of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90 block area of Vancouver's downtown core. We want to talk about something interesting on today's show because we likely spend more of our waking hours in the workplace than any other location. So why is it still so challenging to deal with mental health issues at work? Starling Minds CEO Andrew Mickey, a registered psychologist, joins us on today's show for a very thoughtful conversation about how employers can begin to address these concerns and how his company has developed digital tools to help. And speaking of going digital, tech companies in Vancouver, they are facing a major talent crunch. But are they winning the battle for talent or are they falling behind? Nancy Bassey from the Vancouver Economic Commission discusses how companies are staying competitive amid this ongoing talent crunch. That's all coming up on today's program. Mental health issues can often be overlooked by employers, many of whom don't know how to begin to address these concerns. Our next guest is a registered psychologist. He's here on the West Coast and he's been developing digital tools at his company that are being deployed by organizations such as the BC Teachers Federation. With us today, it's Dr. Andrew Mickey. He is the founder and CEO of Starling Minds. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Tyler.
0: So I got to ask this, you specialize in cognitive behavioral therapy. Can you tell me a little bit about what this is?
1: Sure. Um, I think that one of the things that people don't realize when it comes to mental health treatment is that um, it's very different than physical health uh, or treatment for physical health for the most part. I mean, if people were to see a doctor um, in BC or Ontario or the Maritimes, um, no matter who you see, they're generally going to approach it in, in a very similar way um, in terms of how they got trained in medical school. Um, in, in mental health, it's very different because there's a lot of different approaches to treatment, um, anywhere from more, you know, the straight traditional Freudian approach where people are you know, lying on a couch and free associating to, um, you know, lots of other different kinds of, apparently there's over 500 different types of therapies. And one of them is called cognitive behavior therapy, um, or CBT for short. And um one of the reasons why it is one of the most common ones or one of the most dominant ones right now is because it lends itself really well to um to research where people can um, you know, they've run a lot of studies where people have compared the the effectiveness of it um uh, compared to medication or the combination of both medication and CBT. And so we know it works really well for. Um, mild to moderate depression and anxiety. And personally, one of the reasons why I think that it works really well is because it's really based on um, having a diagnosis so that both the practitioner and the patient has a very clear understanding of what's going on. And then um, I like the fact that it's very much based on education and skills, right? So it's really geared towards helping helping the patient better understand what's going on and how to empower them to um, take the next steps by imp- by learning and implementing different skill sets in order to better manage their own mental health. And I think that that's a key thing that I think really makes it stand apart compared to a lot of other treatments is that you're really trying to get the patient to own a lot of the um, skills that they need in order to get out of your office and be able to manage on their own.
0: Well, you said something there that I think is important, uh, learning skill sets. Is it almost like, and if we go back to, say, physical activity, is it almost like, say, stretching or knowing how to do weights properly while you're at the gym versus, you know, just kind of free balling things?
1: Exactly. I mean, um, I think that the, the analogy is, is, is perfect, right, just in terms of how mental health is very similar to physical health or physical fitness is very similar to mental fitness um just in the sense that if you were to, if you wanted to become more physically fit um there's a certain level of education around it right yeah, i mean there's different types of exercises there's you know the cardiovascular there's strength training there's stretching um and then uh, you also have to learn about your diet and you know what you should eat and how you should sleep and within each one of those different um exercises uh, or or even um even sports that you do whether it's weight training or running or what have you All of those sports are made up of a ton of different skills that you get better at over time, right? So one of the things that I really like to do is I like to golf. And um, you know, golfing is made up of a lot of different skill sets, like hand-eye coordination and timing. And you have to get the basic swing down. And there's so many things that you start off at, as a beginner, whatever sport or exercise it may be. And then you start off as like a rookie. And then as you get better and better, you know, the game starts to slow down. You start to you start to become more of an expert of what you do in different lies, different terrains, different weather. Um, and you just get better and better at it. And it's exactly the same thing in terms of skill sets in order to, to better manage your mental health.
0: So when we think of our day-to-day lives, I think a lot of time is spent here in the workplace. If we're thinking about learning these skill sets, is the workplace going to be maybe the right location to do that? Is it the right setting to get into the habit of you know making sure that our minds are in a good state?
1: I think it is just because of the fact that we spend the majority of our lives in the workplace. Right? Um, you know you spend eight-ish hours uh, give or take. Some people do more, some people do less. But because it's such a major part of people's lives, um, a big part of uh, learning skill sets is one practicing it on your own, right uh, in different situations. But then it's also the implementation of it. right. So for example, if somebody were to come in um, and, and use a program, one of the things that you want to uh, teach somebody early on, is just um, becoming more aware of, um, say, triggers, right? So a trigger is something that affects your mood to change. Um, And either it could be a a positive trigger, that's something that makes you more excited or makes you more happy. Or it could be a trigger that causes you to feel more anxious or worried um, or uh, angry. And so helping people understand what their triggers are, both in the workplace and at home, helps them have a greater self-awareness around what are you know, some of the landmines that you know that they can in- encounter throughout the day. And then as people get better at that, you know, one of the things is if you go back to the idea of the skill sets, right? When people get better at a skill, or whether it's a sport or a hobby or whatever it may be, um, their ability to recognize patterns gets better and better. Right. So if you can recognize the patterns of the triggers, you know, at your workplace and at home. Then, you know, it's a big step towards understanding what sets you off or what gets you upset. And then the next step is what do you do about it?
0: Well, and when we get to that idea, what we do about that, tell us a little bit about Starling Minds and how you came into this. And and you guys have been developing tools in order to address these issues here. What, I guess, is the problem that you guys are looking to solve right now?
1: Well, there's a few problems that we're looking to solve, um, you know, at, at various levels is one of the things I've learned. I mean, I think specifically for organizations. Um, One of the things that we're really trying to help them solve is uh, them understanding how to um, empower themselves to improve their employees' resilience to stress, their productivity, their quality of life. Um, I think that a lot of organizations struggle with this concept of um, mental illness and mental health because um, there's so much stigma around it. So just generally people don't know a lot about it and what can be done to, to improve it. Um, So that's at an organizational level. And then, you know, for the individual, I think that a lot of people, um, you know, they lead such busy lives that it's really difficult for them to take the time um, to go and see uh, a mental health professional. So in my experience, the pain has to be quite high for somebody to go down that road, one, because of stigma and two, because of cost and sometimes because of geography, depending on where people live. So, you know, with all these barriers, a lot of people just find it really difficult to um, prioritize or make the time just to keep their mental health high, even if they're well. Um, I think a lot of people don't even realize that there's things that you can do when you're well to monitor and increase your mental fitness. Um, So for, uh, you know, at an individual level, we're really trying to help promote the idea that um, if people have the basic, you know, some basics around education, some basics around some tools that they can use. They can monitor and help improve, uh, you know, I guess, their standing on the mental health continuum.
0: And then from your perspective, you guys have developed some specific tools that are being employed by certain organizations. Uh, tell me a little bit about what the tools
1: involve. Well, the tools, uh, I like to think of them in like three big buckets. One of them is education. Um, you know, we've got a lot of short animate, uh, animated videos that really helps explain different concepts. Um, and, and it's these concepts that are really key for people to, um, to for, in their own minds, so that, so that mental health and mental illness um, is, a lot, um, is demystified for them. Because I think that a lot of people have seen uh, a lot of presentations like depression and anxiety um, as you know, personal failures or personal weaknesses, um, you know, kind of a deficit model where people are less than because they're experiencing it. And so, you know, we, ha- we provide a lot of education around how is it that people can actually learn to become more depressed or anxious over time? Um, and-, and how do we normalize that as much as possible? So that's one aspect. And then another aspect are, are, are the specific tools that you want people to use. So part of the tools are, you know, self-assessments so that people understand where they are on the mental health continuum. We like to think of both physical and mental health being on a continuum from, you know, very, um, you know, high average to, you know, impaired and, or, you know, unhealthy and, 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 severe at the bottom part. And so part of it is an assessment to help people understand where they are on that continuum and specific tools to help improve skill sets, like self-awareness, um, emotional regulation. So if somebody gets upset, how do they, understand that they're upset? How do they know that they are? And then how do they kind of bring themselves back? How do they kind of calm down? How do they move towards the zone? Um, and then we also want people to uh, have tools to move forward in their lives. So a big part of that is helping them manage their thoughts. So we've got a, um, what we call a, um, a thought balancer to help, help, to help people understand, well, if you take a thought, how, how can you make it more realistic and objective? Um, Because I think that that's a really, really important skill set for a lot of people. And then, um, and then the final one is also like goal setting, trying to help people understand how do you set goals effectively for yourself, because it's one of those things that I think that sometimes people know it, but they don't actually systematically implement it for themselves.
0: And here's the, it can be a sensitive issue as well, and I, I want to maintain that sensitivity here. But if we are making an argument for organizations to get on board with these tools, is the argument maybe sometimes a financial one, that if we take preventative measures, then in the long run, we're going to have healthier, more productive employees. There may be less, say, claims made with regards to insurance claims for, say, some of the therapies that people would otherwise proceed with had they not received any preventative measures.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that that is, you know, obviously a key aspect that attracts um, employers to do something about their employees' mental health is the financial aspect because if people are – if people we, – we like to think of it as like a disability funnel, right? So if you have, you know, a, um, say a 1,000 uh, people in the workforce – you can start them off at the top of the funnel where they're all healthy, but then as you add more stress and pressure and adversity to these people, some of them are going to start to move down that funnel towards short-term disability, and even you know a, a fewer of them are going to move towards long-term disability, and that's really costly to an organization just in terms of morale, um, you know, people being away, um, you know, the, the loss of productivity, the loss of experience when people are off. Um, So it really disrupts, uh, you know, I guess the natural workflow of an an organization. So, you know, I think um, cost is definitely one driving factor. I think for a lot of organizations like Pacific Blue Cross, you know, when we first approached them, um, you know, I think that there's organizations that have certain values um, in terms of doing what's best for either their members or their own um, employees. And so, you know, I think that that's another huge driving factor in terms of, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of, in a lot of organizations where they feel that, um, they, they really want to provide the best kind of support, uh, for, for their, for their, for their people.
0: Well, as we wind up our conversation, I'm also curious, you've been leading this company for a number of years, developing these digital tools that people can use anonymously. And, and I'm curious what maybe you have learned by developing these tools and maybe how people have responded and how you guys have adjusted, or just what, what do you take away from your own experience working at uh, Starling Mines?
1: Um, I, okay, so I think that the one of the things that I take away is how exciting this field is. Um, just in the sense that, you know, I I started getting into um, mental health uh, about 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, the amount of stigma uh, that that surrounded it was, you know, a lot higher than it is now. And um, one of the things when I was in graduate school that I was really driven to try to understand is how do you really empower people to learn how to take care of their own mental health? Um, And, you know, there are lots of things that I learned in terms of how, People can learn to be more depressed or learn to be more anxious just based on things that they do every day, even though it seems like they're doing things. So for example, one of the things about anxiety is that when it's high, people have a tendency to avoid whatever causes them anxiety, right? Which makes perfect logical sense. So if you're socially anxious, one of the things that makes you more anxious is to have a conversation or or to interact with somebody else. And in order to reduce that anxiety... The fastest thing that you can do is just to not have that conversation, right? To avoid, um, you know, social interactions. But one of the things that happens when you do that day after day is that your social anxiety is going to grow, right? And it's going to get worse and worse. Um, and so, you know, I, I was able to really see in you know in my private practice as well how people, um, how this evolves for people over time. And then when we started uh, in Starling about five years ago, You know, part of the ambition was if we were able to provide people with access to these tools and and to this education and kind of a community of of social support of of peers, would people actually take advantage of it? And would they start to say and do the same things as what you see in private practice? And I think that that's the most encouraging, the most exciting thing is that, you know, we've created tools for prevention. We've created tools for um, disability. And when you see what people are saying and what they're doing as they're going through, um, it's mirroring, um, you know, what I would ex- what I would expect. And you know, a lot of times I think of cases being, you know, like is it an A outcome, a B outcome, or a C outcome, kind of thing. and you know, just to see the fact that people can log on to you know this, um, you know, to this platform and have really strong outcomes, and you know, say similar things, and really feel empowered. I think it's one that's really exciting just because it's also very early days for this type of technology. Right? Like the more algorithms, the more we can kind of figure out how to help people in terms of putting the right information in front of them, the right support, the right kind of comments. Like there's so many things that we can use to leverage technology to make it that much better and that much more effective for that one individual to give them, you know, because, you know, you have to think, right, when, when somebody's sitting down and they want to learn more about their mental health, it's a very vulnerable position that the person's in. They probably don't know that much about it. Um, they're probably scared, they're probably anxious about it to a certain degree. And really making the person feel as if, you know, they're in the right place, we're going to help them, we're going to try to our best to put the, the right things in front of them. And, and, and to keep coming up with different ways to lead them along that kind of path or that journey so that they understand so much more about their own mental health, what they can do to improve it um, and keep themselves on track is, is I don't know, I, I just find that personally really exciting.
0: And it is a very exciting endeavor that you're involved with and a very important one, Andrew. And I really do want to thank you for joining us on the show to share what is going on here.
1: Well, thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. That's
0: Dr. Andrew Mickey. He is the founder and CEO of Starling Mines. And stay with us. Nancy Bassi from the Vancouver Economic Commission is coming up next to talk about talent. Vancouver tech firms, they are hiring animation studios, virtual reality startups, VFX houses. They're all itching to fill jobs. The Digital Entertainment Career Fair hits the city once again, April 6th, all in a bid to attract talent. And joining us today to talk about more about the hunt for talent in the city, it's Nancy Bassi. She is Executive Director of Media and Entertainment in the Vancouver Economic Commission. Nancy, great to talk to you again.
2: Great to be here.
0: Okay. So who should be attending this upcoming Digital Entertainment Career Fair on April 6th?
2: Well, it's um, touted as a professional career fair. So um, what we would like is people who are kind of already in the industry. Um, and want to learn about other opportunities, other companies. Often these, um, t- this t- type of talent is head down for hours at a time at one studio. This gives them the opportunity to meet other studios, find out where the opportunities are, where the project's coming out, and maybe how they can use their skill set in other industries as well.
0: Okay, so I'll date myself a little bit, but growing up, you know, if you hear about a tech company, you just think, I don't know, a giant like Microsoft? Is everything just becoming a tech company at this point?
2: Well, I think when we talk about tech companies, we talk about their platforms. So, for example, people say Netflix. You know, they, they compare them to the Hollywood Big Six, but it's actually a tech company. It's the way that they distribute their content. It's the way that they build their platform so people can access. Um, so, tech, tech, and entertainment are just inextricably linked right now. And I think we need to think about them as as equals. So, I, I look at content creation and technology as of equal importance because really those are the jobs of the future.
0: So I've been watching, say, VR, AR, XR. There's a lot of Rs involved with the acronyms now. But <laughs> mm-hmm. I've just been watching it blow up in the city the last two or three years. Tell me a little bit about the opportunities uh, there that we're witnessing right now.
2: Well, we're seeing uh, we're seeing twofold. So we're seeing uh, the games industry and the entertainment industry using virtual reality and augmented reality to supplement their intellectual properties. So now companies who own intellectual properties are saying, oh, I can gain more audience if I have an app, or I can gain more audience um, if I um, you know, do a virtual reality um, experience to get people to want to see um, my show. So a great example is The Walking Dead. They were the first ones to Take their IP, which used to be, started off as a graphic novel, became a TV series, then an episodic game. Now they have wine. Now they have, you know, Monopoly board games. Apparently there's a Walking Dead cruise now if you wow. want to get dressed up. So that's on the entertainment side. On the tech side, we're seeing the entertainment talent bleed into tech with virtual reality for things like, um, medical purposes, simulation for, for, um, Surgery, or um, putting nurses in specific situations where they can practice how they might um, respond, um, and also um, for mining is another one that's being used for. So now we do we can do these huge lidar scans of of uh, environments and figure out where the best place is to have tailing walls where there's cracks, things like that. So you're looking at the environmental impact as well. And thirdly, we're seeing virtual reality and augmented reality in manufacturing efficiencies. So we're seeing um, how do I take this vehicle and I wanna change one part of it instead of doing molds, you do it all in virtual reality. With simulation, you can tell, you know, how the wind is going to hit it. So we're seeing these skills for interactive. We're seeing these skills for CG development um, all over, all over industry.
0: How are we doing right now with regards to, I guess, the explosion of content demands in Vancouver? And we're thinking about maybe, say, VFX houses. And there's even more demand for these kinds of skills to be applied to everything you watch on, say, Netflix or Amazon or what have you now.
2: Um how are we growing it or how do well, we, how, what are we seeing how
0: do we compare it to maybe just a few years ago
2: well we started a huge boom about 2012 2013 and it's just been hockey sticking ever since yeah. um, obviously the the movies every movie has visual effects in it and animation in some sort of way even if it doesn't look like it um, And every movie and the movies that are the biggest ones like the um, Marvel or or things like that are even like 90% visual effects. Like everything's done on a green screen. Um, So for Vancouver, when we saw saw the growth about 2012, 2013, I have to say the private schools really um, came to the forefront and started to get um, create programs that got people workforce ready. Um so when you're looking at a digital artist they they usually go to, to the the private um side which is the Vancouver Film School's Lost Boys Think Tank things like that Uh, Capilano does have a program now, but that came came a little bit later. So um, what industry was saying was we need people now. So there was a couple things we had to work on. One was getting our locals workforce ready, and two was also opening up immigration policy so that we could bring the talent into Vancouver in a timely manner. You know, uh, you could say you could be working on a project and a client could say, "Oh, I've got another two million dollars worth of work, and you need twenty people, and they just weren't here." So a combination of 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 supporting people from within companies, teaching them um, higher grade skills and bringing in immigration were key to the growth.
0: How do you think we're stacking up as a competitive destination for this highly coveted international talent? I I think about how progressive Canada's immigration policies are being touted versus some other countries. I I don't necessarily have to point them out, but it might be obvious. (laughs) But how are we now as a competitive destination to attract a lot of this global, highly in demand talent?
2: It is an absolute no-brainer. I mean, we we travel, the Vancouver Economic Commission travels all over the world to promote Vancouver, both in business and as a destination for talent. And it's it's the easiest sell in the world. Not only are we doing the most exciting projects, I mean, we have one of the most beautiful cities in the world, the greenest cities that rated the third largest, the best city to live in the world. I mean, it is, it is an easy sell for sure.
0: And you also brought up something that I think is also very important. Maybe the immigration thing uh, tackles a lot of the stuff in the short term, but in the long term, you brought up you know the training and getting that skills development, especially for young people. How in tune are, say, the educational institutes uh, with regards to the demand that's been growing here with regards to this particular industry?
2: Um, I think what we've seen is that the private schools are able to switch programs quicker. So they're you know, if there's a soft, soft grade of where uh, software upgrade, or if say for example, if a studio says, you know, they they do go to the studios and say, what do you need? And they might say, oh, we need lighters. Okay, great. So my next program is going to be for lighters. The public institutions um, have longer programs. They're more geared towards them technology, software engineering, things like that, they move a bit slower. So they're good for the kind of the long term um, technologists, not so much for um, the artists.
0: Okay, moving forward. I mean, do you think that Vancouver is going to be able to continue on this growth path? Because it could be a challenge, you know, somebody goes to school, uh, they learn all these skills. And we do wonder if they're still going to be around in maybe four or five years down the road, where are we Where are we trajectory-wise in order to maintain this?
2: Well, I mean, the Vancouver Economic Commission has taken a long look at future economies and what we're seeing now are these skills are transferable into other industries so if you are a digital artist or a software engineer or even a interactive user interactive specialist for a games company you can transfer those into the jobs of the future which are in manufacturing and mining and and efficiencies and things like that so i, I really think that these skill sets are not just for the entertainment side the visual effects side but bleed into every type of industry.
0: I'm also curious, you know, who is looking for the jobs? Is it like the smaller firms? Is it like kind of the big giants? Is it a mix of both right Everybody, now? everybody's
2: yeah. looking for talent. Um, like I said, the immigration policies have helped us keep up um, the talent getting into Canada, but why not start you know, using getting the locals trained up, and that's that's what's uh, I, I'm hoping this does. It, and I also hope it inspires. Another thing that an issue that we have is um, parents; they don't see these jobs as real jobs, um, and I think that we need to kind of switch switch that to so they know that if you're. I had a I was at South by just an aside. I was at South by Southwest um, promoting Vancouver at Canada House, and I had um, a mom say, "Well." my son, you know, spends three hours playing video games. And I said, okay, you know, like, how do I get him to stop it? And I said, well, if you were doing three hours of surgery simulation, would you have a problem with that? And she kind of looked at me and I looked at her and and I think, (laughs) I think the light bulb went off, but these are the skills that are going to be needed for the future. You need to be part of a team. You need to have quick responses. You have a lot of skill sets that these, um, these types of jobs, these types of games are going to be giving. And so we have to think about that. What are the jobs of the future? Parents, these are the jobs and universities don't exactly have those jobs right now. Now, having said that, um esports is something that's up and coming and it looks like you know UBC and SFU are looking at programs to train on on esports which is which is interesting and um, because they recognize that the, it's the jobs of the future we hosted Dota to the international right. last year 20,000 people i mean i was so lucky to be able to be seeing it firsthand it is amazing and it's not just the actual game there's a whole residual economy that comes from esports um that we have to kind of think about. So not only do we want to host these events, we want to know, you know, the training facilities and the schools, and how do you get people to to do smaller games and and branding and and things like that. So it's a huge economy potential for the future, for sure.
0: Uh, I'll have to defend my liberal arts degree to a certain uh, point. I was at the BC Tech Summit the other week, and there was a panel all about say automation and how we do need to find kind of that right balance between like the people with the soft skills and the people with the technical skills. How do you think uh, we're doing right now in Vancouver with that kind of mix of talent that is still persistent throughout the city?
2: You, you know, look, like right now, today, we need more software engineers. And I believe the provincial government has has allotted more seats in the universities. But those are eventually going to be done by AI and robots sure. in 40 years time. And the jobs that are, are going to be there for our kids in the future are the jobs where you need a social science degree, where you need that human component that AI, I suspect, will not exactly um, be able to mimic, um, and and use those skills to engage humans. We're still human, and we're still going to need that kind of you know social science, you know um, philosophy, things like that that kind of work on the human brain for jobs of the future.
0: Well, and do you think that there is going to be a point where maybe? older parts of the workforce are going to go and look at say reskilling to a certain degree they're going to have to update what they can do in order to you know stay active within the workforce
2: absolutely i mean that that happens throughout history you know things evolve and change and manufacturing changes and jobs changes we should always be looking at up- upgrading those skills and and i think that the governments are always really good at responding to that
0: okay so for i'll, I'll let you make one last pitch for the career fair but uh, why should everybody be paying attention come april 6th
2: uh, well, this is the largest professional digital entertainment career fair in North America. Uh, we have the top companies, top medium and small companies who are doing amazing work. You'll get a chance to meet uh, recruiters and HR people from each company, so that they can talk to you about what their needs are. And you may even find out there's a job available that you didn't even know exists. And also, I think it's important to say these aren't just technical and artistry jobs. These are businesses. They need finance people. They need HR people. They need operations people. So if you're interested in the industry at all, come on down and start talking to some of the recruiters and HR
0: professionals. Excellent. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's Nancy Bassi, Executive Director of Media and Entertainment at the Vancouver Economic Commission. And that's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends and leave five stars that it helps people find the show. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thank you for listening.